0: Hi, I'm Chris Waddell. Every week we do a QA and a with interesting and accomplished members of the adaptive community to find how they persevered, how they innovated, how they built communities, and how they found solutions. Welcome to the Name Tags Chat Podcast. All right, welcome to our Wednesday Name Tags Chat, where we talk with interesting and accomplished members of the adaptive community today we most assuredly have an interesting member of the community and accomplished as well paul martin has done a variety of sports he's probably known best as a triathlete but as a marathoner 324 marathoner which is really pretty darn fast 39 18 10k so so i'd say you're a runner as well world championship medal in cycling World, four world championship medals in in triathlon, also a member of, not currently, but was a member of the U.S. Adaptive Ski Team and also the amputee hockey team. You were you were a hockey player to start out, right? You were a goalie. I was a goalie back in the day. Yeah, I was a goalie growing up. Are you yeah. still a goalie now or do you... No,
1: but I still play actually. Tonight was the... We were supposed to play tonight. I, uh, because of COVID, I decided... I'm, I'm done, I'm, I'm gonna have to back out of that locker room for a while, but I still play, I'm a, I've been a skater since I was 25, uh, I think actually five weeks before my accident, I, I joined our first men's league as a skater, as opposed to a goalie, um, and so most of my skating life as a hockey player has been on a, on a prosthetic.
0: Well, it's kind of funny, because most of the goalies don't want to be goalies, right, I mean, they want to be goalies, but they also want to get out and score goals. Yeah, so once yeah, you yeah. guys are, are liberated from the, uh, from the goal, is that what happened to you?
1: Yeah, I think I always wanted to play. I, 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 I was late to the game. I was 10 years old when I started playing hockey. And you know I didn't know the rules, couldn't skate, and then wasn't that good. And a very hockey-centric town in my French-Canadian town in Gardner, Mass, and um, lots of hockey going on there. And when I moved back from being away from a few different places we lived, I got into hockey, and I was horrible. and. Um, they said, Well, wanna try net? And I was like, I'll try net. I, I remember thinking at 10 years old or eleven, whatever it was, like you stopped a puck. It can't you just get in front of it? How hard can it be? And I got in net and I was a decent goalie and I stayed there and I never came out until twenty years or so.
0: And until now. And now you're like, okay, I'm not going back in net. Now it's like and I like, want to score goals.
1: Probably been twenty years ago. I I, I got in net again, you know, with the prosthetic. Like, I was like horrible. I'm like I we needed a goalie at drop in. No one's, the goalie didn't show up. I'm mean, I'll try it out again. It's been a while, but it
0: was What good. do you consider yourself as, as a, as a, as a Paralympic athlete and not all these sports are Paralympic sports, but as an adaptive athlete, do you have one sport that you say that's really who I am or is it a little bit of everything?
1: That's a great question. Um, it reminds me of a couple things. First of all, I kind of, I guess I would identify with myself as a, as a triathlete. Like if I had to pick one, it would be triathlon. Um, but I remember being with, um, uh, showing up the first day at one, one of our cycling camps for the year, first day there, new coach, new teammates. And, uh, he said to me, you know, I can already tell you're, you're a lifestyle athlete. You're not a cyclist. You're a lifestyle athlete. I'm like, Ooh, I like that. I'm
0: a lifestyle. athlete. What, what does that mean? What's a lifestyle athlete?
1: Like I, I, I kind of, I, I identified exactly what he meant at the moment. Cause I'm not, I wasn't committed to cycling. I wasn't committed to skiing. I wasn't committed to triathlon. I just love to do a lot of stuff. I love to be, do sports. I love to be active. And, you know, I tended, you know, I did cycling cause I was good at it and I did triathlon for a few other reasons, but paralympically speaking, I was a triathlete. I was a cyclist because there was no triathlon at that time. I'm sure I would have went triathlon if it was there in, in 2000, 2004, um, I just like to do a lot of stuff, you know. I was playing hockey while I was training for triathlon. I was, I was, skiing while I was training for triathlon and cycling. I was just doing whatever I kind of enjoy doing
0: um, because I enjoy doing it. And it was easy enough going back and forth for you because so many athletes, like we just did a, a talk with Elena Nichols, and she was concerned about getting hurt in at the end of the ski season for basketball. And and that for me, I mean, I race wheelchairs as well, and skiing it's much easier to get hurt than it is in wheelchair racing. And so I was always concerned about that as well. Were you concerned going from one to the other or were you just kind of just having fun?
1: Yeah, just having fun. I mean, my life uh, would have been a lot different if I was ever worried about getting hurt. <laughs> I, uh, I unfortunately don't think that way. Uh, it would be helpful if I did sometimes.
0: I think I remember some Super G training at Winter Park. So this is when you're on the ski team. And we went out one day, early morning, because we'd always do early morning Super G training. And I think you, you sometimes were ahead of your ability. Well said. And, and it was a good morning. And Jardine, the head coach of the team who was coaching there, said, what a great morning. Even Martin didn't stack.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Something he would have said. And I, and I got to say, I'm kind of proud of this. You know, these things you maybe shouldn't be proud of. But Jardine, I know, whatever it was, 10, 12, 15 years after uh, I left the team, he said, you're still the best crasher I've ever seen.
0: <laughs> so we've got lifestyle, athlete, and we've got the best crasher. What are you still doing for sports now?
1: I do a lot of CrossFit is my main kind of staying fit thing. Um, play hockey still once, twice a week. And um, CrossFit four or five days a week and get out and ride my bike on occasion. I rode my bike more this summer than I had in a long time, actually.
0: And riding your bike now, because, I mean, as a, as a triathlete, this was what, 100, and, is that 112 or 122 in the Ironman, on the bike only?
1: 112, yeah, on Ironman.
0: 112, and that's a 2.1 swim? 2.4,
1: 112 on the bike, uh, run a marathon.
0: Run a marathon, 26.2. And you fastest you went is 10.09? And 17 seconds. And seven which is important at that point, 17 seconds after you've been out there for 10 hours. Yeah. Did you know that you always had the endurance? Did you know that you were an endurance guy? Because I mean, you are an endurance guy.
1: No. And it's funny you asked that question because I hadn't even thought about this in a while. And I was just telling somebody the story at CrossFit yesterday. Uh, she's a, and uh, it'll, it'll come around here, but she is a, um, she's the University of Colorado Boulder. Um, um, Army, or uh, ROTC person, and I spent um, when I first went to college, I uh, joined Air Force ROTC because I thought I wanted to be a pilot and I had some big ambitions. Um, and they put me, and they put all of us new freshmen on the on the treadmill, or well, we ran around. We went on the treadmill, and uh, my heart rate wasn't high enough. And then they had me run around the building; it wasn't high enough. Then they had me run around the building a couple times. To get my heart rate high enough that, you know, they could measure it properly because they thought there was something wrong. And I, you know, I had no idea what that meant whatsoever, zero, zero clue. And only like years later, I'm like, oh, yeah, with that, that, oh, I had that natural endurance thing. And I didn't even know what that meant at the time. I had no, zero clue whatsoever. Um, Did you think they were
0: just picking on you? No, I'm like, I thought it was like something wrong with
1: me, I'm like, with oh, my, my heart, my heart rate won't go up. There's got to be a problem. But um, I guess, you know, some natural thing I got. And I was able, you know, take advantage of that years later.
0: How did you end up finding, because triathlon was your first sport, right? So how did you end up in triathlon? I mean, first I guess, sport that you kind of did on the national level, though, right?
1: Let me think about that. On the national level, yeah, that was the first. Well, track and field was the first national thing I did. Um, just, you know, giving it a go, showing up at the track and the national games for amputees like not knowing anything like a year and a half of amputation my process just talked me to going and I'm like oh, these guys gotta crush me i'm like oh, i've never run track and show up and won the 5k and had a huge blister on my stomp and learned like like that was going to be my future i didn't really know that at the time like the, the the blistered stumpy is like covering my head three times with the skin i've lost but you know i showed up and, and did okay and and then i did triathlon i think i did my first triathlon that later that summer um just because i wanted to challenge myself you know again less than three years after my accident see what i could do um and i'm like wow i'm pretty good at this
0: tell people why why your stump might blister
1: well there's uh my i have a relatively short stump it's four and three quarter inches so what that does, I mean, there's a couple of factors to it. It's what's called and you're
0: below the knee amputee. So this is four and three quarters below your knee. Okay.
1: You know, like my this is my stump, and this is my socket. It really pounds the front of my socket when I run. There's like a lot of torque right on the end, and that's where the majority of my blisters come from. And every time I impact, you know, it's rubbing, banging, banging, banging. If you had, you know, a, a 10, 12 inch, you know, residual limb stump this far or less impact on that one pressure point so that's a big part of the problems that i've experienced right.
0: and it's also it, it's softer skin too right it's not the skin that you have on the bottom of your foot which Correct. is really designed to take all of that abuse right so this is some delicate skin i'm sure it's been toughened up along along the way
1: it hasn't been toughened up that's the interesting part like i can't tell you how many people ask you, doesn't it callous up and get them I'm like no it's Super thin, always has been. Seems like it always will be. Like I, I use Tegaderms, I do some things I've learned along the way to kind of, kind of deal with it um, and lessen the problem, but it still, it doesn't always work and it doesn't toughen up, unfortunately.
0: So it's an ongoing issue and has the technology progressed? I mean, certainly we've seen so many veterans coming back with ne- needing prosthetics right and so so there's been an infusion of money into the prosthetic world has have you seen great strides in no, no pun intended have you seen great strides in in the prosthetic community in the prosthetic technology well,
1: it's interesting like you know, a couple of things come kind of to play there first of all uh, below the knee amputees you know i have my knee so the big strides knees have gone you know really took off and the technology goes behind into the, the, the development of, of prosthetic knees because i have my knee the foot has changed some but i still i've tried the new feet i still like the one i've been using since 1993 like that same develop that same shock absorbing oser product that you know they tweaked it a little bit but it's still the same pylon the same foot the how it attaches has gotten a little bit better but not all that much better um, so it's, it hasn't changed a whole lot for me and now you know I don't know I can't speak for every amputee you know the, I'm 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 pretty sure you know once you go for those those first four five six seven eight ten years of figuring stuff out and then you you like what you like and I've been using the same stuff for 20 years and you know it's what I'm comfortable using
0: I, mean, but I you have a variety of different variety of different legs though don't you you have a cycling leg. a uh, how many legs do you have I probably have but
1: these days, less about five that get used on a regular, somewhat regular basis. I get my ski leg, my bike leg, my run leg, my walking leg, and my hockey leg. But they all use the same kind of socket and the same liner, same attachment mechanisms. The ski leg and the hockey leg have like a hip strap and a knee brace, and there's a little more holding it on because a lot more going on. Um, but the same kind of socket design
0: you had said that you did or I'd read that you did your first road race on and it might have been a half half marathon no uh, on your on your regular regular foot your regular leg and then you'd gone to an actual running leg what was what was the difference can you describe the difference between a yeah. everyday leg and your running leg
1: no it actually does. The- that, that, that's close to straight. Like I think the first half marathon I, I ran was my, it's been so long, I don't remember. But uh, I first started running on my regular walking, like the 5K stuff. And I, then I think I got a, uh, a dedicated foot for running, but it was still the same shock absorbing w- leg that I walked on, same pylon, but it was, I didn't have a, f- a foot shell on it. It was a little bit shorter on the foot. It was angled a little bit different, but it was still a walking leg that I ran on. And, you know, I ran that first marathon in New York City in 1995 with that leg. And I, I, it blows my mind because now I'm like, I can't stand running more than 100 meters on a walking leg. It's just like it's so much less efficient than, you know, when I got my first, you know, now they call them a blade. When I got my first running foot, maybe it was, I don't even remember now, 99-ish, 2000-ish. Um, wow, so light. Wow, so springy. Wow, so efficient. Wow, this is awesome.
0: And you don't even wear a, wear a shoe on that, right? I mean, the whole, the foot incorporates the shoe as well, doesn't it?
1: It's just, you know, a piece of carbon fiber with a piece of rubber stuck on the bottom of it, pretty much.
0: Right. So it's a pretty minimalist shoe. How is that as far as as far as far symmetry is concerned? Like, yeah, do you I, get more shock out of it or not? or
1: You know, I still haven't wrapped my head around this, really. But uh, because I run on a prosthetic leg and that whole side just is always in pain to some level. Is it this much pain or is it this much pain, you know? It's always in pain. Um, so I can run on like an 80 year old wooden shoe and I wouldn't care on my good side because the other side just dominates all of my thoughts and processes, my, my focus and attention. Like I run on the oldest beatest up shoes. I literally take the bandsaw and cut off the heel to even it out when it's a little bit uneven. Like, I just like minimalist shoes, uh, I don't need much. So uh, that, the whole technology of running shoes is kinda, I don't, I, it doesn't matter to me. But the, um, you know, I'm always a little bit funky running. I look funny when I run. My hips never hurt, my back never hurts. Nothing's really out of whack. Um, I've asked, I got that asked the, I've been asked that question so many times, like, how's your back from all this? How's your hips? I'm like, eh, they're they're fine.
0: Really? Now that that first New York City marathon that you did, and we're going to get to your books because, in addition to all of the sports that Paul has played, he has written two two memoirs. So, so is there a third one coming? I guess is the question. You can hold that for later. But, uh, but that first one, one of the high points was your New York City marathon, right? And you you got into Central Park. And New York City is a is an amazing marathon, isn't it? Really. You start on Staten Island, you go over the Verrazano Narrows Bridge, you go through every single borough, and then you finish and you probably like me, like I've done a lot of workouts in Central Park. So I have a pretty decent idea of what's going on in Central Park. But that's, that's really the first time that I kind of knew where I was. You're just taking, I, I was just taking it in. But Central Park sounded like it was absolutely brutal for you what was that experience like at the end? Because that's your last 10K of 42K.
1: Yeah, well, uh, yeah. The last, the wrapping it up, finishing in Central Park, I, I, you know, it was from mile 20, which is in Harlem, going south. That's when, you know, I shut down, leg really hurt. Just tough, tough, tough miles. It's like knockout every other mile was like, oof. And then as soon as I rounded onto Central Park South, I think it's 59th, on the edge of Central Park, and then there's all the people and all the screaming. And everybody, you know, has to freaking yell for the one-legged marathon or you're going to hell. So everyone's screaming, right? And I'm just like on top of the world. It's like my first big thing that I've ever done that's really significant. I crossed that finish line and bawled my eyes out. I was just like the the people, the scream and the intensity, the everything, uh, how much pain I just went through. Like it it hurts way more running on a prosthetic than it does not on a one. Trust me.
0: But it is, I mean, there were times that you were thinking about stopping in that last, in that last 10 K, right? I mean, the pain was just so much. You were getting breakdowns of the, of the equipment of your, of your leg and everything. Weren't you?
1: Yeah, it was that the blisters were a mile 20 ish when I, when I first like was this, my leg hurts a lot right now. I got to run freaking 10 K on this. Wow. Okay. I can't stop. I got to keep going. And you know, it was slow miles, but I kept shuffling along, kept moving and whatever it was for. Or 20 is, four, 47, Have I is a four of 14. Is this
0: time? on the wall <laughs> in your, in your office? Or? I, got,
1: I got that. Cause that being, and that was such a, A life turner for me, that finish line. That that's like that photo is hanging over there. Um,
0: okay. Okay. So it's not just the time that's written on the wall, it's a photo of you at the finish with the time. I've got it. I was imagining like the the swim records that they have, like at the swimming pool where they're like, oh, the 50 meter record for this pool is this or that.
1: Right. No, it's not (laughs) that you know, there's I've been enough finish lines, you know, there's been a number of photos, but like that one. And the 1009, which is over here, Ironman, you know, those two photos are in the office.
0: What do those, what do those remind you? Why do you keep them there?
1: Um, because I, I, I really just think the, the marathon, because that first moment of when that, when I cross that finish line, I'm like, I'm going to do whatever the hell I want to do for the rest of my life. I don't care what it is, because I want this feeling back. I want this feeling that I can't get anywhere unless I go out and get it. You know, I maybe it was three years before I graduated with a mechanical engineering degree. I was kind of proud of myself. I had a job, made good, relatively good money. I, you know, had the career going, I had what I needed, but no single paycheck, all of them combined did not give me that joy, you know? There was way more to life than working for this company. and that what's really set me off is like that finish line feeling I need it back.
0: And what was it? Was it accumulation of all the work that you'd done? Was it the pain you'd gone through? What was the what was the euphoria at the finish line?
1: I think it was really centered on something what might some people might consider very tragic, losing a leg, has led to this really, really, really wonderful experience I'm having right now. And I, I know there's more of these out there and got to go, go get them. Cause I don't care how many welder, how many welders I sell this year. It ain't going to like fill me full of joy. You know, there's more out there. I got to do it now. I gotta- and that's a
0: reminder. That first taste is, is go get something more, go, go find a way to, to get this feeling. But that feeling like there's a lot that has to happen to get, to that feeling, right? You can't, you can't run a marathon every day and have that same feeling. There are a lot of bumps and bruises along the way and probably moments that you wanted to quit along the way too, I would imagine.
1: Yeah, yeah, lots of those, absolutely. And you know, I've done 10 Ironmans to date and there's lots of quitting thoughts, lots and lots of quitting thoughts and lots of why the hell am I out here doing this? this I have never been this freaking miserable in my life. And then, oh, finish line. This is the greatest feeling I've ever had. Let's do it again next year. You know, it's, the pain goes away kind of quick. I mean, I haven't given birth, but you know, it's, you have another kid after that.
0: Um, so yeah, is, is it is it just at the finish line that it that it goes away? That the that the pain goes away. So that's the moment when when all the work matters is at the finish line, or or there are points along the way, points along the way as far as training where. Where you say no this is this what matters or is it that finish line
1: it's primarily that finish line i mean there's been a lot of training sessions too where i have not been happy like i'm not motivated i'm in pain i don't want to be here right now but this is what i do and i know why i'm doing it so i'm going to keep grinding and you know i don't um it makes me think of my relationship with uh you remember ron williams the cyclist yeah oh yeah his Fellow BK, um, and and there's a couple other guys that go with it, but he's primarily the one one that comes to mind because he's a good friend and he was, you know, he was a he was a cohort of mine. He was my era. We raced together. We had the same disability. Um, he's beat me a few times, um, but he would almost always beat me in training, um, and I would almost always beat him on race day. Uh, because like that's what I'm here for this is why I'm here. I'm not really motivated in training. I do what I got to do. I do what I got to do, but this is why I'm here. So I, I, I always enjoyed that, uh, race day.
0: So it's the lights come on. What is the, what's the difference for you? Because that can be a really difficult thing for a lot of people. There are a lot of people who train better than they compete. Why for you was, was the competition when, when your best came out?
1: I I don't know that I can really tell you why, although I can tell you the experience that might point to it. So the one world championship that I won was a time trial um, in Germany in 2002. And I just felt good. And I got in the gate and uh, geez, what's his name? It's been too long. One of the, one of the coaches, this guy from, I think it was from the Czech Republic. He held my rear, he held my, you know, they grab you by under the seat and hold you steady while the clock ticks. And then you take off. And I'm just holding my bars. I looked up and I'm like, I love racing. And he said, what should you do, Paul? And I was just like, I love this. And I went out, tore it up, finished the race. And you know, it was maybe 30 seconds later. They told me that I, I think it looks like I won. And I was like, today is just a good day. I just, I love this. It's all happening.
0: When you went out of that start, did you have a feeling that you were going to win when you told him you love to race? Did that mean I'm going to win? Um,
1: I don't know if it specifically meant that, but it meant, you know, I'm going to do as good as I ever could today. Today's a, it's all, all the parts are here. And I did my training. I feel good. I'm rested. I've been doing this for a few years now, and I know what I'm doing. And uh, interesting, interestingly enough, there was, I, was, I was trailed by our mechanic. And uh, I remember him saying after the race, he's like, all I remember was thinking is, oh, you went way too fast, man. What are you doing? What are you doing? And um, he didn't know that I could hold that, you know, because I guess I'd, I'd been prepared.
0: You've been prepared. Is, is there something that you tell yourself? Is it, is it about the finish line? Because you're going to encounter that kind of pain especially if you're going out what he considers to be too fast, you're, you're going to be managing lactic acid the whole way along. What, what, what's the reminder for you? What do you tell yourself when, when it's too difficult? How do you keep going?
1: I guess there's a couple of answers to that question also. Uh, one, you know, I've been doing it long enough, so I know what that threshold is I can hold on to. I know how much pain I can handle. I know when my lactate's flushing. If I'm going too hard, I know that, oh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hurt. I'm going to pay for this if I don't. So I know where that is. Um, and I think that helped me a lot that day. And um, reminds me of another story of Iron Man when I, when I set the world record. Um, you know, it's all about perspective and mindset and managing pain, physical pain, mental pain, that whole thing. You know, Iron Ironman, another 10 hours, you're thinking about a lot of shit. When I was out there, pardon the language, for, for, that, for that time trial, it was like, I think it was 27 minutes. So didn't have to think about a lot. Of um, but in 2005 in Coeur d'Alene Idaho um, I was engaged and I married that wonderful woman um, my fiance, I didn't know if that was
0: engaged in the race or you were engaged to a woman okay
1: okay, okay. A wonderful woman, and uh, her dad and I might choke up forgive me if I do her dad was uh, dying of pancreatic cancer mm-hmm. and when we drove the 24 hours over a couple of days from here up to Idaho or not 12 hours, whatever it was. Um, we got there and shortly after we arrived, like got the call that her um her um her uh dad had a couple of days to live and so she flew back to Australia. She's Australian. And I stayed to race and on that five plus hours on the bike, not and more so on the bike than the run, but I remember it on the bike. Like you're just in that one position, <clears throat> cranking, 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 and things hurt—back hurts, leg hurts, lungs hurt. And I'm like, this isn't pain. I'm doing this to myself. This is not suffering. And I, could, I could turn up another notch. Like, no, that is suffering. Like that hurts. This is just you know, my choice.
0: Pancreatic cancer is what's suffering.
1: Yeah, that that whole family is doing not well right now, and like, I am I'm doing. F- fine. This pain is not, this is temporary. And I was, that really helped me dial it up and push and push and push. And I give Dave a lot of credit for that. And, uh, yeah. And on that run, same feeling, but uh, i not quite as intense on the run, but I was more at that point. I was really, really managing my own pain on the run. Um, and finishing it, you know, it was there. Some other force was giving me a little bit more.
0: Was it your way of, of, you know, paying tribute to him of honoring him to say, I'm going to go out and I'm going to hurt myself as much as I can and go as fast as I possibly can. Is that, is that what was going through your mind? Like, like this is, this is for him.
1: Yeah. Not, well, not, not really intentionally. Not, not until I got into the run into the bike for whatever time it was. I don't remember now, but I just remember thinking on the bike, okay, I'm uncomfortable, but you know, think about it, Paul. You could pull over anytime you want, paint it away. Um, That just helped. Just helped somehow tapped
0: into it. Well, that's where sport can give you that perspective, right? The perspective is this is in some ways it's a preparation for what you might encounter in life. You put yourself in challenging positions, right? Is that, is that some of how you've looked at sport? Have you, have you sought challenges to prove yourself to yourself or why have you, why have you done it? Or is it just fun?
1: Yeah, there's probably a lot, a lot, a lot there. Uh, I lost, uh, my leg when I was 25, but that wasn't the first like big thing. Um, my, my childhood wasn't the most horrible in the world, but I, it wasn't as good as it could have been when I was, uh, when I was 12, my mom was sent away to a hospital for some mental disorders. And when I was 16, I put myself in a foster home because my dad was not the most pleasant person to be around. And I made that happen. I put myself into this foster home and made it happen. And that was not you know all that great um and i that whole if you can picture it all the whole backstory you know was not great and i think that you know i'd been through enough when i lost my leg i'm like well i could probably make something out of this you know the whole foster thing was really good to me i um went to a state school for free almost free i uh, like that one of the little shining benefits of that um you know, I, I learned like my life got better when I when I crossed that made that difficult decision. And, you know, I learned at that young age and I'm not a victim. I'm just in charge of my own destiny. You know, like if there's some sh- stuff going on that ain't cool, make a change, make things better, you know, make it work for you. So well, it's an
0: interesting point, because uh, with our this, the, this comes from this, this podcast comes from our name tags program, which is our school program. And we have a thing called our four S's of resilience, which are questions we can ask ourselves when things are difficult. And the first one's about self and you just, you totally nailed it. It really is, am I a victim or am I a survivor, right? And I'd imagine you, you went through all of these where the second one's about the situation, is it overwhelming or is it a challenge? Am I, you know, am I alone? Do I have support or am I alone or, or am I part of a team and do I have one strategy or many, you know, and, and, and looking at this, that idea of I'm not going to be a victim and just taking the initiative to put yourself in a foster home as, as a kid, as a teenager, as a 16 year old is, is taking initiative for your life. When you lost your leg, when did that moment happen that you said, okay, I can make something out of this. Was this initial? Was it in the hospital? Was it afterwards? When did it, when did that happen? Do you remember?
1: I remember one moment very clearly that told me my life would be fine. And I don't really remember when I decided I was going to be an athlete. Like I don't, I don't wholly remember that moment, but, but this story, which I've told a few times uh, and wrote about really, really sums it up. I think I had gotten out of the hospital on a Tuesday and that was 7.30 in the morning. I checked out of the hospital at 9.30 in the morning. I was
0: in How my, long were you in the hospital? A
1: uh, total of uh, three weeks, I think it was.
0: Three oh, weeks. Okay. So you got out on a Tuesday. Okay.
1: And I um, got in the shower in my apartment. And then I had hair at the time. And I got out of the shower. And I was combing my hair in front of the mirror. And I had their music on like I always do. And I was rocking out, combing my hair, singing along to Aerosmith. And I was, and I saw myself in the mirror being perfectly happy. And then I was like, holy crap. I just lost my leg and I've never been this happy before. Like this is the happiest I think I've ever been combing my hair. Like this is such an amazing defining moment. Like I just lost my leg and I'm perfectly happy
0: when like got it. That was, I'd imagine a surprise to a certain extent, but it sounds like you never looked back. You didn't question it. You didn't say, well, do I have any right to be happy? I just lost my leg. I should be unhappy. Just kept going.
1: I think I can say like maybe five times in 30 years, I've been bummed out about being an amputee. Like and his brief, goes away quick. Usually it's a pain thing, um, but it's, or it's some other small thing. And maybe it's been three times. I don't really, I can't really think of it. But that moment was immensely, immensely education for me. Immense education. It was like, I got it. If I'm happy, like, what the hell else am I looking for? You know, I'm, already, I'm happy. Clearly, happiness was not stuck in my left foot. So, you know, I got this. And now we're just gonna there's going to be challenges and stuff. But, you know, it's not like it, I'm less than I was before. That was really clear at
0: that moment. Why, why did you decide to, to write your story? Because you've done it twice, right? So one man's leg and then drinking out of my leg. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. I, I've read the first one. I've not read the second one. Full disclosure. Better. Yeah. The first one was better.
1: Yeah. It's, it's got more of a developing storyline, you know, you know, kid that grows up as a troublemaker, goes in a foster home, loses his leg, recovers, finds love, finds sorrow, finds, you know, the glory of the finish line along the way, all that, you know, philosophical stuff that goes with it and the second one is more of a collection of my race stories. I wrote about all my uh, races uh, as the years went by and I uh, decided to compile them, edit them, put them together, make them into a big long story of basically my racing career um, and all the fun, crazy, weird stuff that goes along with it.
0: And that one was more of like a series of blogs in some ways, right? Like writing about your career that then became, became a full book. Correct, correct, correct. What was the story? that you had to tell them? Why, why write a book? Um, Especially the first one.
1: There's a couple, you know. F- for one, I, I, I thought I could um, touch some people and help them out with their, with their situation. And if they read about what I went through, they could benefit also. Um, I mean, that was certainly a part of it. There was that altruistic, share my story. I'd done a decent amount of speaking at that point, and I, I, I heard from enough people that I, I affected them in some positive way, and, you know. What more could you ask than that? I'm sure you've you've been through that. Um, so why not put it in writing and let other people enjoy the story when they and I can't hear me speak and they get the full story too. And there's a lot of stuff on stage I don't talk about, you know, that I share in the book for sure. And I don't hold much back. If if you recall, uh, um, you know, I don't mind talking about rolling fat joints and selling them in high school and being that kid, you know, that you don't want your kid to be. You know, I was that kid, you know, and I, you know, had the cocaine straw up my nose. And, banging my face on the mirror because um, I was too whacked out. And you know, that was a big, like, I don't want to do this anymore in my life. You know, that, that stuff, which I don't think every, every disabled athlete story tells. Um, not that they don't want to tell it, but they don't have that to share necessarily. And I just wanted to share like, you know, no matter where you are, no matter what little situation you're in that you're not too proud of yourself or not happy about your situation, um, you you're could very well be on the step of something big.
0: Is it hard to, to achieve that level of honesty to, to essentially strip yourself bare and say, look, I was, I was a punk, I, I made some bad decisions. Uh, you know, is it hard to do that? Is it hard to, to put it in, into words where then those people reading it can interpret you differently?
1: Yeah, I, don't, I had no problem with that part of it. Um. The part I have a problem with it, I still kind of wonder, I have some regrets. When I uh, talk about my dad, you know, and I try to, I didn't even tell the whole story with him, but I told enough to paint the picture. You know, and of course I gave, well not of course, but yes, I gave him the manuscript first and I'm like, this is what I'm gonna write. This is what I'm gonna publish. Before it goes into print, you have the right to, you know, tell me what you think if you don't want me to put this stuff in writing. he said, no, it's, it's your story, you know, Publish it. All right, you know, we had enough of a relationship, you know, later on in life. Um, but then, you know, I learned later that, you know, it hurt him a lot, you know, he was, he was, he was hurt by it. Like, phew, Should I have written that? Should I have kept that to the family, you know, kept that private? I don't know, not so sure about that.
0: It's, it's an interesting question. I don't know, you've probably read, like, or maybe watched, like, The Great Santini. Uh, Do you remember that back in the, so I'm totally forgetting the, the, uh, the name of the author, uh, which is amazing. Great Santini was a, was a movie like back in the, back in the eighties or whatever. And it was military, military father who, who abused his, his son, you know, just one of those like. The son was a basketball player and the father had been a basketball player. And he always told him, you know, you're never you're never going you're never going to be as good as me because you're not tough enough to do it. And it was the kind of thing where you know, the kid would come in after a game and he'd crack him across the face and, you know, bloody nose and and all of this stuff. And and, and the great Santini was, uh, you know, it was about his military and about how, how tough the Marine dad was. And afterwards, uh, Pat Conroy, Pat Conroy is the author. And, and, and his dad afterwards, he'd written a memoir and his dad said, yeah, you needed me for that good story. You needed me to make you a great writer. And so it's kind of an interesting sort of twist on it that, you know, you you tell that and you have to exercise your demons and it's, it's some of what happened and how do you tell it. And that's the hardest part about writing that kind of a story. You think that you're writing a memoir. You're writing an autobiography, and it's your story, but your story has a whole lot of other people in the story, and you might remember it differently than they do. Right, right,
1: hundred percent. Yeah, and he's like, and that's what he says: "I don't, I don't, I have a whole different recollection of all that." I'm like, "This is this is the impression you left on me. This is what I get," and I, you know. And it went on you know he didn't change a whole lot and you know for years it was still difficult to be in the same space but
0: yeah no that's a that's that's a hard one but probably but you know i mean that's that's the hard thing about writing those kinds of stories too isn't it that that somebody else might be going through exactly that kind of experience and you're talking about empowering people having people gain from your from your life experience and losing a leg in some ways wasn't nearly the most dramatic thing that you had. Right. And, and, and it might be that somebody else needs that, that, that somebody else is in a difficult situation and can't find their way out of it to, to say, okay, well that, this is how Paul did it. This is what he did. And that resilience is something, do you think that the resilience is something that is, that is gained from those experiences is something you're born with? Or is it something that you gain from all of those experiences that make the trauma, in some ways, a little bit easier because you've had you've had a lot of problems along the way. You've had difficulties.
1: Yeah, yeah. I think there's a definite correlation. There's a little bit of nurture, a little bit nature. And you know, when I uh, when I I've said this before too. Like I I was the perfect guy to lose my leg. You know, I was the right age, twenty five. I wasn't in high school. I didn't have all that stigma that goes with that. You know, I wasn't too old that I you know had to figure out how to do it. I was strong enough and willing enough to take you know, to run with it. And um, I'd been through some stuff before. So like, you know, this wasn't the, necessarily the hardest thing. Um, emotionally, you know, personally, I've been through more personal pain. Um, physical pain was probably right up there with the most physical pain I've ever had. Um, but the personal part of it, I'd already kind of conquered and knew I could handle. So and I, 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 I honestly feel like I was, you know, I was the right guy to be in that accident. Um, and on, on that note, which is, makes me think of this story. So, um, surely, you know, six months after I had my accidents, uh, went home to my hometown, got there. I was living in Cleveland, Ohio at the time, working at this company went home, see some friends and they were kind of there to support me. And, uh, this was an, um, still amazes me that, 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 that how impactful this moment was. Um, an old friend from high school, somebody I know, knew since I was 10, 11 years old gotten a lot of trouble with, did a lot of fun stuff with. Um he said to me, you know, Paul, me and the guys are talking, like, we're glad that you're the one that lost a leg. And I'm like, really? He'll see yeah, you're the only one that could handle it. And I was like, really? that's how you think of me? You hold me up that I'm the one that can handle it. That's whew, that's huge. That's uh, really humbled to hear that.
0: That is a, I actually had a, had a similar experience while I was still in the hospital. One of my high school buddies called me up and in high school for me was probably, it was probably in a lot of ways, the smartest people I've ever been around students, teachers. It was, it was, it was the hardest, the hardest experience in a lot of ways. It was, it was the most challenging experience. And, and, uh, and this guy called me up and he's like, he's like, you know, of all our friends, you're, you're the only one who can handle this. And. And my response was kind of, your response too was like, wow, like I looked up to all of, to, to you guys, like, why, why do you think that I'm the one who could do it? But it's also, you ended up running with it. Do you feel like you're a better person now than you were before? Or are you just the same person? How do you look at yourself? Because is, is, there's a point of demarcation, Right is is there do you look at yourself differently before you lost your leg than after you lost your leg
1: um in a lot of ways yeah i, I th- i'm a better person for sure i mean i think just age made me a better person for one you know i think a lot of us just get better as people as humans as we get older i know certainly i was i was on a you know i kind of righted the ship before my accident but i was still you know a bit of a crazy party guy and i Kind of had that reputation after I lost my accident after I lost my leg too and um, but I was I was I became more uh, more self far more self-confident after my accident, far more like
0: self-esteem. Why I was is that? How did that work?
1: I think from a, a couple things. first of all like bef- before I lost my leg and whether it wasn't that whole, but certainly in my through my early 20s at the very least, halfway through college like I never felt like I was you know I was the least important person in the room like no one wants to talk to me like you know why would you know why would anyone talk to me when they could talk to that guy you know that kind of thing Um, and then when I had my accident and this was also something that totally didn't see it coming and I don't know if you know other athletes or disabled individuals folks with a disability have had a similar experience but I, I got out on a Tuesday, like I mentioned at the hospital on Saturday, I was like around the house for four or five days. I'm like, okay, now I'm bored. Let's go back to work. And I went right back to the office on Saturday on crutches cause I had to get like back in the mix and I went back to work and everybody was like, totally giving me that vibe. Like you just lost your leg. You're back at work. You're cracking jokes. You seem like you're fine. Like attitude-wise, and I was kind of fine attitude-wise, and I was just happy to be back. And I got the vibe from everybody, like, "Wow, be more like him." Like, "Wow, I wish I was." And I would hear not just the vibe, but feel like, "Wow, nice. thank you." I'm not gonna complain for the rest of the week. Like, I'm done complaining. Maybe for the whole year. Like, you're showing me yeah, there's nothing to complain about. And I'm like, "Thanks, but I'm just just being me." I'm just like, you know, trying to get my own shit together here and be entertained during the day and working instead of being at home and watching. Jerry Springer, which was on back then, uh, or whatever I was doing. So it was just like getting back at it and it was helping other people. And I was like, okay,
0: you became exemplary in some sense. You know I mean? You're, you, you said that before you were kind of forgotten you were the guy that nobody wanted to talk, talk to. And then all of a sudden you're like, you're, you're super man, you know, you're, you're, su- how yeah. was that? Did you have to, did you have to reconcile that with, with, your image of yourself because you said i'm just i'm just doing what i do i'm just showing up like i haven't even done anything yet did you have to reconcile their image of you with your image of yourself and or did you have to live up to it too
1: no i yeah i don't think i had to really reconcile anything i don't remember having any kind of struggle with that in any way the the only struggle i had early on was like why are all the little kids staring at me? You know, like, that that thing was probably the only uncomfortable part of the whole story. Like, why are people staring at me?
0: Um,
1: besides that, no really other
0: problems. Did, did this, this essential pat on the back, did it help you say, okay, I'm going to do more now? Did it push you to do more? Their um, reaction to you?
1: I don't think that did. I think it was my own, like, you know, I was always pretty energetic, always pretty athletic, uh, never necessarily put my athleticism in the right place, but you know, I was always pretty good at whatever I tried to do. Um, and I was like, okay, I've got all this energy, you know, I'm fresh out of college, I'm, I'm 25, I'm gonna do something, let's try triathlon, see how it goes. Um, and I go, wow, I can swim okay. And I can, turns out I'm pretty good on a bike, I didn't know. Um, you know, that was the first sport I really tried. It was my friend's hybrid bike just to get somewhere. Like I went to, for a ride, and I'm like, "Try that out." I'm like, "Wow, I'm sweating. I'm doing something." This was you know, a few months after my accident, whatever it was—eight, ten months—and I was like, "Cool, I, I can ride a bike." And does not it hurt? it's Kind of normal, you know. And it, like running, hard. I didn't have a good run for a good year and a half before, until I had a good leg to run on. First leg was a total piece of crap that I couldn't do shit on. Um, and then I was—I was running. I was biking. I was moving. I was sweating. And um, then I got, finally got that good run leg. And I was like, okay, swim, bike, and run. And I can do all that stuff and beating more than half the people. Like, I'm getting, you know, and then I had been skiing on my crappy prosthetic leg. The first one with duct tape and like skiing wasn't, I wasn't that good of a skier to begin with. And I went skiing and it wasn't that much different. And I, um, I knew there was competition in skiing. I didn't really know about the disabled other stuff but I knew there was the disabled skiing. And I'd seen it at a resort I was at somewhere. And I'm like, oh wow, that guy's got one leg. I'm like, better than that guy so let's uh move out to Colorado yeah start skiing
0: how did how did that happen how did you so you were back in Massachusetts and decided to move out to Colorado
1: I was actually living in Jersey at the time and I was recruited by this company when I was went to school in Mass University of Massachusetts at Lowell went to Ohio to do the job that I was recruited for and sent to Jersey to do the job and then lived there doing the job for two three years and um moved to Colorado from there.
0: Wow, and, and you said you weren't that good. You moved, just moved to Colorado, just said, okay, this is, I'm going to do that triathlon thing, seemed like it worked out okay. Why don't I try something else? Is this the thought process?
1: I know, like skiing was fun, right? Skiing right. is just, it doesn't really hurt, except when you crash in the stuff at high speeds. But skiing <laughs> itself doesn't really hurt. Running hurts, you know, running just hurts. Um, hurts my, hurts your stump. Um, But skiing didn't really hurt too much and um, just seemed like a kind of a sexy, fun thing to do. And I enjoyed going fast down the hill. I still had to figure it out. I didn't know what I was doing. And, you know, as you might uh, lay witness, you know, years later, I, a few years later, as I learned to ski, I still, I made the US team, but I wasn't that good. I was okay at best. I was not really a great, a great alpine skier. I was pretty decent at bombing down the hill, but I could not freaking solemn ski to save my life and gs and not so great okay i think the one podium i ever got was or maybe i got a couple of podiums once in the gs and once in the super g maybe another one or two along the way but
0: the beauty of skiing for you is that training in skiing is really like the race it's not any different i mean it's it's not it's not two runs of slalom or two runs of giant slalom but training for skiing really, I mean, granted, there are times you're doing drills and there are a variety of other things, but a lot of it is, is you go run the course and that's not that much different than racing. You might not strip down. You might not be in your suit. You might have your jacket on, but it's kind of like racing for training. So, so it sounds like it, it's right up your alley. Yeah, right. that's why
1: I think I really enjoyed Super G and downhill training. Loved it. It was just so much fun bombing down the hill um still kind of was always miserable doing super g doing um, slalom just couldn't didn't have the fast feet you know just couldn't put it all together I, i'm not a technique guy i'm not a finesse guy i'm a like that's why i'm running and biking and just and down bombing down the hill but like it's any of that finessey stuff like hockey i i have hands of stone on the ice i can't shoot and score and do all that stuff but i skate 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 i'm a great back checker i break up plays i can you know enjoy the speed of the game and having fun with the guys. All that stuff I enjoy.
0: All the dirty stuff, yeah. Getting dirty.
1: I'm a grinder. If I can happen to be in front of the net and muck it around until it goes in, that's the
0: goal I happen to score. But that's hockey. I mean, you watch playoff hockey, and it's one of those, like, you're just fighting for an inch in hockey, it seems like. You just fight, 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 and then maybe you get that one little inch and then moment of daylight, and then somebody's there. and yeah, hockey's a tough, tough sport. It's it's a great sport to watch, but on the on back, your your racing as training reminded me. I'm, I'm, i I want to drop back into the book if that's okay, because because the idea of writing, you said that you came to it from speaking, and speaking, I, I don't know where I acquired this knowledge, but but somebody had told me at one time that uh, that sometimes you you don't you didn't necessarily know exactly what you were going to say when you got on stage. And the things, things often worked out pretty well, but there wasn't necessarily the practice. There wasn't necessarily the training, the preparation. It was, it was race day when you got on the, when you got on stage and, and race day sometimes worked out. But writing is an entirely different endeavor where you have to show up every single day. And I remember there was a coffee shop, right? Isn't this how it worked? You, you sequestered yourself in a coffee shop To to write the first book, I have two copy shots What was that process like? Yeah, I
1: think once I, um, you know, what what kind of sparked me to write it was I was, one, you know, the second book was a collection of stories, right? So, I uh, I was writing stories about my racing, and people would let me know like you really enjoy writing about your stories, and you're a great writer. I'm like, really? I'm just writing. I don't really know. I don't have any training. I don't know if I'm any good at it. But I write my stories. I try to make them entertaining, and then you know, uh, and, and educational, and bring a reader in and people would give me, you know, some kudos, like, really I love writing your stuff. You should write for a magazine or something. I'm like, huh, I guess I'm okay at this. So that was like, gave me some confidence. And then um, people would say, you know, she's good stuff here, man. You should, you should write a book. I'm like, what really? And I'm getting the story out is one of it. It was one part. The second part is you're speaking. It's good to have a book. Okay, that'd be a good combo. And I'm, I'm really freaking broke right now. So maybe they'll give me some money Cause I was, I don't know if you remember this about me, but I, you know, I never had any money. I never had it. I had a crappy car and I had. I was always on a shoestring all the time. Like it was something called the Paul Martin factory with my friends. Like if I was around, everyone had to pitch in for my part of the meal. because like, I don't no mind like oh, Paul Martin factor an extra 10% for everybody, you know, like you know, I was always broke. Um, but I was committed. Right. So it was like, I don't care how broke I am. You brought
0: some humor, you know, you were contributing to the meal.
1: Right, exactly. I got a story to tell. Who else has been in Europe this year? I've been here. I can tell you a couple of stories. Uh, so yeah, and so I, I realized I could, you know, let's give it a go. And and then once I started, like then I was hooked. And um and I made you do you remember how how the book really, really got started? Do you remember that part in the first opening page?
0: I I I think I do. Can I ask a can I ask the question and maybe that maybe that gets it to you? Will your family drive with you at night?
1: <laughs> they, they, they will. They
0: will. They let you drive at night, really? They
1: do. They do. The majority of my sleeping at the wheel stories were uh, during the day, actually.
0: Oh, were they during the day? Okay. And so it's just it was rocking you to sleep, just, just being behind the wheel of a car was the...
1: That whole lack of self-preservation thing well, that I possessed. Um, I'm better now. I've been falling asleep from good 30 since the accident, I
0: think. So. Okay, yeah. That's a good reminder not to fall asleep, I think. If you crash it before then. Um, uh, How many but, crashes before then? Know, sleeping at
1: the wheel, probably five. Really? Yeah, it's not good. Don't be
0: like me. Don't be like me. No. no. I mean, not that, not that you were necessarily doing anything bad. You just had some sort of narcoleptic just comfortable association with driving
1: as my my dad later said you know kind of the way you burn the candle at both ends that's kind of the problem like yeah probably right you know live hard work hard party hard right all the time you know go 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 and then when i'm done going i mean i still like i go to my go 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 i go to my kid's piano lesson they start playing piano i sit down i fall asleep because i just stop moving once i stop moving you know i'm done it's always part
0: someone,
1: shark. So going on in the middle. So
0: yeah. Part shark. You have to keep have to keep moving to stay alive, right? But, but um so did I not get it right, the, the beginning of the story?
1: No, you didn't get it right. Nice try though. But there were some facts with the stuff. Um I got pulled over in Fraser, Colorado, driving um to the YMCA up this road to swim. I was doing a swim workout on my way. It was snowing, snowing hard. And I was, couldn't follow the line so well. Um, and I got pulled over. And I had to do the whole thing. You know, I'm wearing Speedos, I'm not drinking, I'm going swimming. Um, but my license had been suspended for not paying a traffic ticket back to the no no money thing. So I didn't, I, uh, my license was suspended. And um, that's a mandatory five days in jail. I found out the hard way. Um, yeah. So I spent five days in the hot sulfur Springs County, County lockup. Um, and actually I was skiing for the U S team at the time and the judge's team skied for the U S junior team. He's like, I'll give you to the end of the ski season. Then you got to come do your time. So that's when I, the one year I skied with the U S team went to Europe to the thing and end up, you might remember, I didn't have the best relationship with the coach. I came home a little early um, checked myself in the jail. Cause I was so freaking fired up to start writing. I'm like, this is perfect opportunity five days with nothing to do. I brought paper, pen and started writing and came up the first bunch of chapters and did 2,500 push-ups in those five days and literally sat in my car, checked out, sat in the car and went, that was freaking awesome. That was way better than I thought jail could be. I'm fired up. Like I made some friends. I did a bunch of push-ups. I got this book going. Like I took jail and made it work for me. I'm like, bring it. Like I look forward to shit going wrong. because. Something always goes right. I always find the good thing. I, I do. And I don't say I'm great. I'm not, not because I'm blessed with the ability, because I, I go out of the way to find the good thing. And that's, that's not by accident.
0: Has that always been the case? Have you always been an optimist in that respect?
1: 100%. As much mm-hmm. as I had the self esteem, I always, always know there's something good coming. There's always something good coming. Still believe. Wow. That wait. is
0: that is amazing on the on the jail side because I, I went I actually did three presentations in a jail, one time in like north of San Diego, and uh, and and I went in and I I think I was I made the mistake of I was watching Sons of Anarchy at the time the the biker the biker gang and and I and I was like oh oh I am I am such a target in here and just you know like the five hundred pound door. Opens and you and you step through, I roll through, and then then the other one then that one closes, and the other one opens, and you're like you're in jail and I went back and I, I, I literally I was staying at a buddy's house, and I went back and and took a nap for three hours after being in jail. I was exhausted, so you had an entirely different experience <laughs> than I had. I was like. I mean, you, you might be okay going back to jail. I mean, it might be this kind of thing where I've got to write a new book. Like, maybe I should, maybe I should go to jail. What can I do? How can I, how can I get this thing started, get a kickstart? But, yeah, I didn't, I didn't want to go back. I hope you don't. I, I hope you don't. What are you, what are you doing now? You have kids, right? Two kids, two boys? Three boys. Three boys. Three boys. Fourteen 13 and ten. 14, 13, and 10, is that what said? Yeah. And what, are they, what do they do? Are they into sports? And Not that
1: athletic, frankly. The oldest one found hockey later in life, so he's been playing hockey for a couple of years now, and I'm um, one of his coaches, which I uh, really enjoy being on the ice with him and, and making sure he's doing things right uh, and doing things better than I do, and make sure he's picking his head up way more than I do. Uh, the other two, the middle one, pretty athletic kid, but, but super smart like literally genius love goes to special school because he's can't sit in a classroom like everybody else he's got too much going on um but good at stuff but he doesn't, doesn't take interest in much he's done you know, coaching in soccer he's played um flag football he's done rock climbing and taekwondo but he's never interested that long he'll find his way um he's got long hair and he just likes being different and um he's getting into mountain biking now actually um he's been watching my mountain biking videos so i've Took him around on a ride for a couple hours on Saturday and we had a great time together. Um, and the little one, um, he's just a wonderful, super sweet young man and hasn't really enjoyed sports all that much, but really loves to bake. So if you want some brownies. He's,
0: the, he's my guy. All right. What's, from all of your experiences, what's the, what's the story that you tell them? What, what do you feel you have to teach them? Yeah, that's
1: a great question. Um, yeah, I, well, first of all, I, you know, I hope they get it from me that um, and my wife because she is she's got better stories than I do. Um, she uh, and I just both work hard, try to get the most out of every day, try to really enjoy ourselves, try to keep ourselves healthy and fit, um, try to you know be good to our communities, be good to be good to our neighbors and to ourselves, and and just show them that the, that the right way to go is to work hard and you'll get stuff. Stuff will come to you. If you're putting the effort in, you might not know what it's going to come, where it's going to come from, what it's going to be, but you attract, you attract positive things when you're putting positive vibes out there and working hard. The good things happen.
0: When you get out there and work hard and do the grinding part of it and just show up every day that things will happen, that good things will happen. So it's a message of resilience and and also a message of optimism, right? That you do the work it's uh i had a i had an acting coach at one point who said that uh, the luck is when preparation meets opportunity
1: yep couldn't agree with that more so now my days are uh are filled with trying to stay fit trying to take care of them my wife is a is a uh an anesthesiologist she works down the road she's got hell in covid right now and she's covered in a spacesuit every day and you know every day is hard and unpleasant and i think yesterday for the first time i heard her say so over COVID. Like she doesn't complain about it. She just does her job. She takes care of people. She gets them where they need to be. She's amazing. And she's a super competitive CrossFitter, like muscles and <laughs> work, works hard and former pro triathlete and Harvard-trained anesthesiologist. She's like an amazing woman. Um, very, very, very blessed to have her in my life. And and these kids are like they're pretty amazing. On so many levels. And um, so real estate is what I do nowadays. I invest in real estate. We have a good number of rentals and I flip properties and lease options to put people who couldn't necessarily buy a house into houses. And it's all, it's all working out pretty well.
0: Awesome. I think it's, I think it's great what you're doing. Please uh, thank your wife and all of those people on the front lines for all of us. I mean, it's, I, I know that, that, that they've dedicated their lives to helping people, but this, this is a huge challenge that they that they could not have anticipated. So please, please thank her and all the all the people who who work with her. But thank you also, Paul, for for sharing your story with us, for sharing your wisdom, for sharing it with your kids and continuing to have fun. I mean, that's that's what I'm taking out of this is do stuff that that has that makes you, you know, makes you makes you happy. Have fun.
1: Do stuff that just gives you fills you with something that lights you up, whatever it happens to be, whatever it is. It doesn't have to be sports. It doesn't have to be anything in particular, whatever it is. Like that's what I can relate to, right? Sports and writing and talking to people and trying to be, you know, be a good vibe out there. And it's just what I, what I enjoy
0: doing. Well, that's it. Enjoy, enjoy what you do. Connect, hope to do a good job along the way and maybe help some people. And, you know, cause I, I know probably for you as well, there are so many people who've helped me out along the way. And a lot of them probably don't know, how much they've helped me
1: yeah the people like you know when i needed legs i got legs when i needed bikes when i got bikes and skis like all the, the product stuff that was so critical um th- that's a pretty you know pretty crucial part of the whole picture right there when you're disabled athlete in an athlete in general but just getting the parts like now i'm i'm, I'm, I'm not to keep rambling on here but uh you know i'm no longer the guy so i don't get free stuff anymore but luckily now i have insurance so i can get stuff but i still have the same you know bunch of legs i got that oser was so kind to me to give me so many years you know they they pay me a chunk of money and they every month and they gave me the legs I needed. And I've been very fortunate in, in that regard for sure. I mean, it's ironic, right? Like when I had no job and no money, I got all the legs I wanted, you know, at 20 grand a pop. But now that I'm stable, it's it's hard to get a foot. <laughs> it's hard to get new legs.
0: That is that is interesting because oftentimes it's it's exactly the opposite. I remember seeing a quote in the Boston Globe, you and I share Massachusetts, and we share an affinity for. For Boston teams, I'm assuming you haven't you haven't uh, you haven't jumped ship since you lived in Colorado. Yeah, uh,
1: I'm, I'm Boston all the way.
0: Okay, okay. Phew. I was I was a little bit concerned right there. I didn't know if you'd gone orange and blue on me.
1: I walked in with the Boston Bruins. Someone gave me some crap about it. I'm like, it's not coming off.
0: Yeah. <laughs> it's not coming off exactly. Yeah, and don't 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 give a hockey player a hard time about what he's wearing. That sounds like a really bad idea. But I remember reading in the Boston Globe uh, back when Drew Bledsoe was the quarterback of the Patriots. And he said, he said, they never, never give you a, an apple for free until you can afford to buy the whole cart. And for a lot of people, that's the way that it goes is that, you know, like he, for him, he gets he gets to be huge and makes all makes a gigantic salary and all this stuff. And then then everybody wants to give him everything for free. But when you really need it is when you're starting out. And so for you, it was exactly the opposite, which which had to be super fortuitous. Yeah,
1: very much so. It reminds me of, I think you were uh, uh, nominated or won an ESPY at some point, did you not?
0: I was never nominated for an ESPY. No, no, I kind of, I think I preceded this this whole yeah. thing. I I know, I look at the next generation in some ways and, you know, there's always that little bit of, you stand on the shoulders of those who went before you and then you think, Wow, but they who came after me, they got to do some really <laughs> cool stuff. Yeah, and you've been nominated twice, right, for an ESPY? Two
1: thousand and five. And you know, the point is, like, you go to the ESPYS and they give you these bags full of all kinds of cool stuff. Like, do all these millionaire athletes really need all this stuff for free? Like, I'm glad I got it because I'm broke. But those guys, they, 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 and they they like left a couple things out of my bag. And it says in the bag, like, if you don't get this, let us know. So I'm like, hey, I didn't get this. And then he sent me the whole bag all over again. I got like twice everything. I'm like, wow. <laughs> all kinds of stuff. That was
0: pretty cool. <laughs> the swag. You know, I don't, I don't think that you ever get over free stuff.
1: No, I still enjoy the swag. Yeah, swag for sure. But at the ESPYs, like, they sat me on the end. Like when I got, took my seat, I was like on the aisle. I'm like, on the aisle. They wouldn't put me on the aisle. I didn't win. Right. And then I
0: didn't win. But I was on the- <laughs> You overthought it.
1: Yeah, Marlon Shirley really won again, yeah,
0: so that's But a cool event, and, and also, I mean, talking about the ESPYs, I mean, one of the things, ESPN was great in in, in promoting and, and uh, producing our, our national championships when we were skiing to get us out there and get people to see some of what we were doing. But then just to go to an event like that, I'd imagine that it's pretty cool to be there with the people that you watch on television. What was your thought about your place in, in the world as a result of getting invited to the ESPYs?
1: Um, geez, how do I answer that? They, probably the coolest thing was, and you know, I invited my dad, my dad was my guest. Um, and me and my dad and um, Joe Feisman sat in the back of the, the bus on the way to the golf thing that they did. So it's just me sitting next to Joe Theismann, my dad's on this side and we're just rapping about stuff. And I'm like, this is just cool. Like, I don't know if I deserve to be here, but uh, I'm here and it's, it's fantastic. And who's the guy, uh, the Patriot, uh, Harrison. Harrison is sitting right in front of me. Um, what's his first name?
0: Uh, Rodney, Rodney I'm, Harrison. I'm yeah,
1: he's sitting in front of me. And like, I'm kind of rapping with him a little bit. He's not that chatty, but like, you know. I just felt like I, I don't belong here but I'm really having a ball. This is good stuff. But you
0: know? well, imagine Joe Theismann to a certain extent looked at you and went, "I could have been in your I could have been in your position." I mean, with, with the how badly his leg was broken, Talked he about- could have he could have been an amputee in a heartbeat. For sure. And
1: let me tell you that guy. He knows stop talking. Talky talky talk the whole time. It's all Joe all the time. <laughs> but it was, very entertaining. it was
0: very entertaining it was a good time which is funny when you see that these are people you've seen on television and suddenly they become real people right well paul i'll let you get out of here uh because uh usually we just go to six o'clock but you've had so much great stuff that we've gone a little bit longer so yeah it's 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 11 after six right now so i hope i hope i haven't haven't you know thrown a wrench into the dinner plans or anything like that but Well, thanks again, Paul. I look forward to seeing you in person. Keep up the great stuff and yeah, we'll follow you. So I really appreciate it.